Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, may the Lord bless the reading and now the exposition of his holy word. I forget exactly how it's said, but it's something like never talk about politics, uh, sex, or, or money. And so you'll be pleased to, to know this morning that this, this sermon doesn't have any politics, but it has all the others. Uh, if I offend you this morning, then my hope is that it's not me, but the word of God that you find offensive. So let brotherly love continue is the opening line of this chapter. It's uh, also the sermon title, Let Brotherly Love Continue. Now, you know the word brotherly love. It's Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia is the city of, of brotherly love. That's the word that our author uses here. But it's not my favorite word in verse one. My favorite word is the word that's translated continue or keep on. This is an exhortation of encouragement here in Hebrews chapter 13. It's not, listen, you've not been doing something and now you need to start doing it. This is an encouraging message to suffering Christians that they should persevere, that they should continue. This Hebrews 13 fits nicely with Hebrews chapter 12. The end of Hebrews chapter 12 talks about how we are receiving a kingdom, this is verse 28, that cannot be shaken. And so we should offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, and we should let brotherly love continue. We have received a kingdom, and we've received a kingdom together. So there are three uh, headings of exhortation. They're up here. The first is ministry. The second is marriage. And then finally, we get money. In each instance, our author is going to give us an exhortation, and then he's going to give us a reason for that exhortation. For ministry, the exhortation is to hospitality, as we'll see in a moment. And the reason is the angels. Next, the next aspect of ministry is an exhortation to care for those who are in prison and also for those who are mistreated. And the reason there is that we are actually one body. And then finally, with money, we are told uh, both a negative and a positive exhortation. The negative is don't be obsessed about money. But then the positive exhortation is to be grateful for what the Lord has given you. And the reason there is God's abiding presence and his steadfast concern for his people. So let's first think about ministry. Ministry. Let brotherly love continue in ministry. The word uh, minister just means a servant. 
We have a ministerium that is a collection of servants and not a magisterium. We are all servants. Uh, Presbyter means elder. It doesn't mean dictator, right? We have only one king, and that is King Jesus. And the rest of us all, pastors, lay people, any Christian is a servant. And how how are we to serve people? Well, in many ways... But verse 2 and 3 give us practical ways that we should continue to let brotherly love continue. The the first way is in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Notice the word there, don't neglect. It's easy to overlook people, isn't it? It is easy not to be attuned to strangers in our presence, people that the Lord could have brought into our fellowship. But we should always have a positive orientation towards strangers. We should always think in the back of our minds, is there anyone new here? And I'm not saying this to discourage this congregation. You are a warm and welcoming conversation, a, a congregation. Just let this brotherly love continue and welcoming the stranger. You are to be commended for this. Now, there is an interesting uh, rationale in verse 2 for why we should uh, reach out to strangers. Well, because some, by doing so, have entertained angels without being aware of it. Here, I think our author could be thinking about Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, who entertains three visitors two of whom I believe are angels and one whom I believe is the Lord himself. He could also be thinking in the next chapter in Genesis 19, how Lot receives the two angels after the, with, while the Lord is with Abraham. And what I want us to see is that in each instance in Genesis 18 and in 19, the person who extends hospitality actually receives more than the person to whom hospitality is extended. Abraham in Genesis 18 welcomes three visitors and he gets a remarkable promise from the Lord himself that he will have a son with his wife, Sarah. In Genesis 19, Lot entertains two visitors who are angels and they literally rescue his life. His life is preserved even though Sodom is destroyed. Now, what about us? Well, I don't know if I've ever entertained an angel. But the Son of Man, Jesus himself, says in Matthew 25, that when the Son of Man, Jesus himself, comes in glory and he judges all the nations, he will say to people, what you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. We honor Christ himself when we extend hospitality, Christian kindness. We should also minister to people by caring for them. And there are two kinds of people that are highlighted, those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. After all, you can be mistreated without actually being in prison. Let brotherly love continue, he says. Earlier in the book, in Hebrews chapter 10, He says this in uh, verses 32 to 34. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is when you first became a Christian, 
You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Let brotherly love continue, he's saying. This is who you are as a people. You extend love and compassion to those who are in prison, those who are mistreated, even though doing so can expose you personally to hardship. Now, it's interesting, Roman law, um, I didn't know this until preparing for the, the sermon, Roman law didn't treat prison as punishments. Punishments were things like fines and whippings. But as you waited to receive those treats from the Roman government, they had to have somewhere to put you. And so they put you in prison and you were regularly dependent upon your own ability to provide for yourself or you had friends who would bring you food. In Acts chapter 28, when Paul has been in Roman custody for quite some time, Luke makes clear at the end of Acts 28 that Paul kept, he provided for his house by himself. So, so prisoners needed people to come alongside them. And our author, having given the exhortation, continue in brotherly love in this way, gives them a rationale. Why? Because we are one body. This evening, when we celebrate communion at church, we are partaking of one bread. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because we partake of one bread, we are one body. We belong to Jesus, and because we belong to Jesus, we belong to each other. Now, the world wants the COVID-19 crisis to end. I do too. I'm sure you do as well. But only the church will reach out to suffering Christians in love because they are fellow believers, because they belong to Jesus. So let brotherly love continue to those mistreated Christians, to those Christians in prison. It makes a difference. When I was kidnapped by police and kept in prison for years in strictest secrecy, Richard Wormbrand writes in his book, Tortured for Christ, a Christian doctor actually became a member of the secret police to learn my whereabouts. As a secret police doctor, he had access to the cells of all prisoners and hoped to find me. All of his friends shunned him, thinking he had become a communist. To go around dressed in the uniform of the torturers is a much greater sacrifice than to wear the uniform of a prisoner. The doctor found me in a dark, deep, dark cell and sent word that I was alive. He was the first friend to discover me during my initial eight and a half years in prison. Due to him, word was spread that I was alive. And when prisoners were released during the Eisenhower Khrushchev thaw in 1956, Christians clamored for my release and I was freed for a short time. If it had not been for for this doctor, who joined the secret police specifically to find me, I would never have been released. I would still be in prison or a grave today. So friends, let brotherly love continue in how we minister 
to each other, how we serve and love each other. And if you are in hard times, if you are in the dungeon of your life, know this, Jesus is with you and Jesus in his love for you is even now sending someone into your life in order to help encourage and comfort you. That's the first part, ministry. The second is in verse four, marriage. Verse four, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed should be undefiled or kept pure. So first we're told to honor marriage. We should honor the institution. We should encourage those who are uh, biblically qualified for marriage, a single man and a single woman to uh, get married. I see a couple in the congregation that I preached their wedding uh, just in December. And so that is a lovely thing. We honor marriage. We should speak well of marriage in a culture that mocks marriage, that laughs at marriage, that sees marriage as a uh, a burdenless um, difficulty, the church should speak well of marriage. Marriage is a high calling. It is a duty and a joy. It is a sweet school of education. It is a, is a way to learn to uh, grow in love. Marriage should be something respected. And those who are in marriage honor marriage by being faithful to their spouses. Those who are not married honor marriage by refraining from sexual activity outside of marriage. This is the point of saying that the marriage bed should be kept pure or undefiled. God knits two people together in marriage, a man and a woman, and they should stay close to each other, eschewing all others. A married man is intimate with his wife in a way that he's intimate with no other woman. A married woman is intimate with her husband in a way that she's intimate with no other man. So whether we are married or unmarried, we must honor the marriage bed to keep it pure and undefiled. Why should we do that? Well, he's given us an exhortation. I promised you a rationale. Because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There are sexual escapades and adulterous liaisons that bring with them public, rapid condemnation. But there's some people who cheat and they're never caught. And verse four reminds us that God sees all things and God will judge. Now this reminder to us need not be taken as condemnatory. It ought to be a great comfort to the aggrieved party that God knows what the philandering spouse is doing, that God will see it and God will judge. Now, as a church, we need this exhortation because the culture has completely abandoned marriage, both in theory and in practice. In 2019, Pew Research reported that though almost 60% of adults 18 to 44 have lived with someone, only 50% of adults have been married. So there are more adults 18 to 44 who have lived with someone without being married than there are adults 18 to 44 who actually got married and lived with their spouse. This practice reflects a cultural consensus in theory 
Almost 70% of all adults, according to Pew Research, 70% said it's fine to live with somebody without being married. Though in perhaps a residual uh, recognition of what the Bible says about marriage, uh, just over half think, well, you know, if you want it to be long-term, then you probably should get married. In one February 2020 op-ed in the New York Times, How to Make Your Marriage Gayer, a, uh, a writer argued that couples in man-woman marriages should actually take notes from man-man marriages and woman-woman marriages. This advice is strange, unbiblical, but totally consistent with the culture's consensus on marriage. Now, lest we get cocky, I'll remind you that Arkansas has one of the highest divorce rates, if not the highest, in the nation. And many people divorce over reasons that are not at all biblical. In January 1997, in the state of California, a woman filed for divorce after 25 years of marriage. Two years after she filed for divorce, The reason for her divorce came out. It's because 11 days before she filed for divorce on December 28, 1996, she won $1.3 million in the California lottery. Now in order, so she wanted to divorce her husband just to keep all the money for herself. Now it has a good outcome because she deceived the state in order to try to get all the money the judge actually awarded every single cent to her ex-husband. We dishonor marriage when we treat it as a loose partnership for our own personal pleasure or private gain. And we honor marriage when we see it for what it is. It's a picture of the love of the Lord Jesus for his bride, the church. Now, that's not to say that divorce is always impermissible. On the contrary, in a fallen world, we can honor marriage by divorce, by remarriage, after the death of a spouse, or if you've been legitimately divorced. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, carefully summarizes the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and 19, as well as the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 and 1 Corinthians 7. There are times when divorce is not only morally permissible, it is, sadly, advisable. But single or married, divorced or widowed, we can honor marriage by speaking well of it, thinking highly of it, defending it in the public square, and living in accordance with God's law about keeping the marriage bed pure. God is watching what we are doing, what we are saying, what we are thinking, even when no one else is. So that's our second point. So we have ministry, marriage, and finally, verses five to six, money, money. Remember, this is let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue with your money. Now, there are two exhortations here in verses five and six. The first exhortation about money is negative. That is to say, keep free from the love of money. And then the second is positive, be content. So first, keep free from the love of money. The Christian life should not be characterized by constant grasping. 
by constant attempts to make more money. There, there's an ambition which is perfectly appropriate to the Christian. We're called to such an ambition in the spiritual life in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So if you are uh, starting a business and you want to bring a product to market because you want to bless your customers with some something new that will improve their lives, this is a thing that honors the Lord. But we cannot dream of plunging in to piles of gold like Scrooge McDuck. We cannot treat every single interaction with people on transactional terms where we look for the angle at every moment. That is unbecoming a Christian. That's the negative exhortation. Keep doing that. The positive one is be content with what you have. Again, a little caveat. This is not, you know, lazy bones, uh, sinking in the sun. How are you going to get your day's work done to borrow from uh, Johnny Mercer and Hoagie Carmichael? Never going to get a day's work done sleeping in the noonday sun. This is not a call, an exhortation to lazy not, laziness. But it is to say that the Christian life should not be one of constant frustration. God knows best how to use his servants. So often in my own life, I have thought that I will honor the Lord when I achieve something in my life, some career goal. That over there, over that hill, around the corner, that's where I'll honor the Lord. And that's a mistake. My call is to honor the Lord where I am now, to be content with what I have. That's the exhortation, and author, again, gives us a rationale, quoting from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. And just as the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you to Joshua. So he says the same thing to you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what the Lord says to us. So if you're spinning your wheels in a dead job, or you have no work to do, if you're struggling to figure out, then just remember what to do with your life. Remember that obedience is not around the corner or over the hill. Obedience is here and now. God has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. God always keeps his promises. Now, we, we need to remember what the Lord says to us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But notice that our author, by quoting Psalm 118, also gives us something to say to ourselves and to each other. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You may feel alone and abandoned, but you are not. The Lord is your helper. Your boss may not be your friend, but what can he do to you? What could he possibly do to you? 
You know, how quickly we think about how the Lord is with the persecuted church, how the Lord is watching over people in some North Korea dungeon, but how slow we are to think that the Lord is with us when we have to go have an awkward conversation with a mortgage company. The Lord's with them. He's with us. The psalmist didn't say the Lord is my helper unless I have no overdraft protection or I I will not fear unless my boss is going to resist my promotion at work. No, when life is uncertain or even there's certainty and it's altogether disagreeable, we should say to ourselves and to each other, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We see God's faithfulness to people all throughout the scriptures. Think of widows. Think of widows in the book of Ruth. You've got two widows in a horrible, lawless age, in a time of famine, and the Lord preserves their lives. In 1 Kings chapter 17, the Lord sends Elijah not to any widow in Israel, but to Zarephath and rescues a widow. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha is sent to a widow and she's preparing. Remember, she's gathering some sticks because she's going to prepare one last meal before she dies. And through Elisha and her little jar of oil, God preserves her life. And Jesus in Matthew 6 and Luke 12, he says, look at the birds. God is concerned even about the birds. He feeds the birds. Look at the flowers of the field. Solomon in all his glory, all his splendor, didn't look like those gorgeous flowers. He has provided so much for us. We have so much to be thankful for. You know, some horses are fast. There's a horse named Secretariat. I think in 1971, he uh, achieved, he won the Triple Crown. He was setting records in 1971 that still stand today. Uh, his average speed in Triple Crown races was very fast over 37 miles an hour. Just imagine being on a horse going that fast. Some of you who are good horsemen or horsewomen would would be exhilarated. Others of us would be just absolutely terrified. But you know what? My 2011 Subaru with just under 180,000 miles, (laughs) if it went 37 miles an hour max, I'd go, this is a piece of junk, right? Just imagine, I have a 2011, I have a 10-year-old vehicle with just under 180,000 miles that if Julius Caesar saw it, he would have coveted it. If Napoleon, if Napoleon had seen me in my Subaru Outback, he would have thought it was a technological marvel and the most important instrument of war ever until it ran out of gas. So let's be grateful. Let's be grateful for the, for the things that God has given us. Let's be generous because the Lord has blessed us so much. I have a colleague at JBU who's incredibly generous. And whenever I commend him for his generosity, he always says, it's all the Lord's money. Amen. May we all be so generous. Two points of application. First, if you struggle with being content, The answer is to give your money away. There is nothing like showing yourself that money is unimportant than giving it away. 
Now, let me be clear. Uh, Paul Sagan, our senior pastor, and I have no idea what people give or don't give, and we do not want to know by design, right? You are not here. You are not welcomed by your pastor because I see a big dollar sign over your head, and I don't talk to you because there's a little scent over your head. I have no idea, and I don't want to know, right? But what the author is saying is let your giving continue. Let it continue. Get, learn to further appreciate the joy and delight of giving. Second, because you have nothing to fear, because the Lord is always with you, no man can touch you because he is with you, rest. You should rest. Tomas Sedlasek, in his book, The Economics of Good and, e- and, and Evil, he describes an important Jewish improvement over pagan life. It's the Sabbath. He notes how we've lost the Sabbath in the modern world. And that's because we wrongly think that we are primarily have worth and value because of our work. And we need to remember that we have intrinsic worth and value apart from any job we do. Sedlicek makes the observation that we now introduce people almost exclusively by what they do. Sally, have you met Steve? Steve, he's in high tech. Steve, Sally, she's a doctor. That's how we introduce people. It's, and have you noticed how when people, um, they have to take a day off of work. They need a break from the rat race. It's almost as though if you're not working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you simply have no value. And if you slack off just a little bit, you have to give an excuse for why you are not producing 100% all the time. Now, again, a caveat, that's not to say that we shouldn't delight in taking our hand to a plow or in my case, fingers to a keyboard. I don't think I've ever taken my hand to a plow. I thought it'd be cool, but I just never have. But we always must remember that we are infinitely more valuable than our labor productivity. And so remember the Sabbath and keep the day holy. God has given us 52 days a year. That's over two months of vacation. And we should honor him and rest on that day, Sunday to Sunday. Remember that Jesus did not die for you because he looked ahead in the future and said, now there's going to be a really good worker in my kingdom. There's going to be a really good accountant for Jesus. There's going to be a really good engineer for Christ. No, Jesus died for you because he looked at you and said, there's a sinner in need of a savior. You have worth and work, not because of all the stuff you do, but in spite of all the stuff you do. Remember, he died to save you, not to launch you into a lucrative career. So friends, let brotherly love continue Remember here in the closing that the author of Hebrews is concerned about Christians who are drifting away 
in the face of persecution. And one way we hold each other close to Jesus is we hold each other close. We, we put our arms around each other. When Jesus brought you to himself, he brought you to us as well. So you're not alone in the Christian life. You have Jesus. You have us. We have each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we love each other because you first loved us. And we pray that deep and abiding love for Jesus would give us deep and abiding love for each other. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you that they care for each other practically. May we always be a church that is generous and open-hearted. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen.